back to Feargenics, where we don't just watch scary movies, we devour them. I'm Kelton. And I'm Alex. And using our industry knowledge, we'll tell you everything you need to know about horror cinema, from classic to contemporary. Nice. We're sounding official now that we've got an intro. Yeah. It's almost like we're a podcast. It only took us nine months to write that. Nine months. It's been so long. And I am so glad that we're done with what we were doing over the nine months. Yeah. I'm so glad to get back to working on Feargenics. It just feels like it's been like five years since I've even thought about this podcast. Mm -hmm. I think we've both moved to new places. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. We both have moved. We have had like five or six massive projects with tons of deliverables that we've had to do. Mm hmm. The spring and summer season is particularly busy for us uh, because that's when a lot of our clients want to film stuff and um, because it's so nice outside, it's really beautiful where we're located. And because of that, our summers are just jam-packed. Not enough time to work on the more artsy stuff like podcasts and all the original content. So it's yeah. a nice uh, breath I, of fresh air. I didn't even think about that, but aside from Feargenics, we're actually starting to kick into more original content again. Yeah. Which is a nice place to be. As an editor, I mean, a lot of content can kind of be samey. It feels like it's, it feels like there's more control and you're able to have more creative decision in the stuff you make. And that's always nice when you make stuff. Mm -hmm. Cause I mean, it's yours, you know, you, you made it at the end of the day, regardless of how much input was yours or someone else's. And it's more fun to talk about. Like a lot of the client work, you know, you're not able to really discuss a lot of what you're doing. Some, sometimes you're not legally allowed to discuss yeah. what you're doing. So, uh, But like with the original content, not only can we talk about it, but like we can show it off. Like yeah. I can post it for you. You can see it. I don't know. feels and, good. And you can kind of get loosey-goosey with it, not be afraid of going outside of the boundaries because you establish the, own, the boundaries that you have yourself. So you breaking them isn't really going to upset anybody. It's just you taking the show a different direction or whatever. Yeah. All that to say, I'm glad we're back in the studio. By the way, we're in a studio now. Yeah, yeah. We put up the uh, we put up the sound dampening. It's it's we've got a lot more space for more panels and stuff. But I mean, it's a good start. Yeah, I think I can hear a little bit of reverb. Um, I don't know if that'll be fixed by the time we get to the next episode, but like it's gonna get a lot better. Yeah, it's funny you said you have a lot more space. We're actually in a much smaller space than the original first two episodes. Yeah, our first two episodes were recorded on a set for a different podcast we'd had, and it was like a bar, like a giant bar table, and like in, it was in a studio on a psych wall. So literally is big as of a space we could have yeah it's a ten thousand foot studio and and now we're in a tiny little office area which i don't know i kind of like it i like how quaint it is it is a little bit hotter i don't love that but i think that's a uh, part of the industry so i've heard sound booths are always kind of hot hey i mean that's perfect for uh for the movie we're going to be talking about today it's pretty hot texas heat i don't think that's what we watched <laughs> oh, I forgot that's a movie too. <laughs> uh, well, we did not watch Texas Heat. We watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a horror classic directed by Toby Hooper. And it was my first time watching it, but I'm sure for many of you, you've probably seen this movie. I feel like I've either met people who haven't seen it or I've met people who've seen it like six or seven times. This movie in particular, I can really feel the disparity between our knowledge. Like, I have some stuff to say about this movie, but, like, Kelton has been dwelling on this for a long time. You've seen it eight times now? Yeah. The, the, well, we just finished our eighth watch. Yeah. 
I don't know. It's just always been something that I've been drawn to. It's the the movie that set the standard for horror, I feel like. A lot of the tropes in your average horror movie today are just ripping off what Texas Chainsaw did, you know, in 1970. And at least the first half of this movie is. This movie, the first half is like so heavily referenced by every other movie that it almost felt like I'd seen it before, even on my first watch. And then the movie um, sort of pivots in the last quarter of it. And it, it's almost like a whole separate, like it's an epilogue almost to the movie. Yeah. Um, that like isn't as heavily referenced by the horror genre. It, it continues on its own weird little like demonic tangent of just like fucked up, like cannibal stuff that's not really been done in a movie before. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the only, like, culture point of reference I have for this is Resident Evil 7 Yeah, we were talking about. Yeah. Which was actually kind of a trip for me because I was more familiar with that than I was this movie. Uh, so seeing that scene in this movie, a lot of things clicked for me. Yeah. Um, Just the cannibal, the cannibal redneck hillbilly. Type. Yeah. I mean, if you've played Resident Evil 7 and yeah. seen this movie, you'll instantly understand there what is I'm a talking lot, about. There is a lot of, uh, of stuff. Pulled, uh, I feel like from like the current Resident Evil series today um, from this movie. So I want you to cast your mind back to the first time you watched the movie. How old were you? You know, I think the first time I watched this movie, I was 18. OK, what was that like? What were your initial impressions on the first watch? Um, I thought it was really gross uh, and like unsettling just from an objective standpoint. This movie is not super enjoyable to look at. There, there's a lot of attention to detail on the set deck with, you know, there's bones and there's teeth and there's just death and stink and rotten meat. And when these things are on the screen, they, they, there's these really uh, strange, these strange noises, these like the, the way that the score is handled in this and the, the sound effects, they sound just like weird, abstract, abnormal noises. And you're seeing that in combination with this gross shit on the screen. And it's just, it, it fills you with dread. This movie lingers. It lets you look at what you're looking at for a while. Every single scene, I feel like, is extended by 30 plus seconds. At every point that there's extra space to put in shots that continue the scene and make you live there, they do that. On my first watch, I had to pause this movie several times and do something else because I was getting uncomfortable with the scenes, like the length of the scenes, like the tension was too much for me to just sit there and consume all at once. Yeah. Uh, uh, things happen here about, they don't tell about. <laughs> I see things. So this movie is a road trip movie. Yep, just four teens in a Ford van traveling through Texas. And that's, you know, all it would be if um, they just stayed in the car. Yep. You know, if they didn't make any stops along the way. All they had to do was keep driving. Uh, the thing that I think is really interesting about these characters is, one, they're supposed to be teens, but they clearly look way too old. Yeah, they look, you know, some of them look like they're approaching their 30s. Mm -hmm. They're also like kind of hippies like they're the kind of people who like take a vw band on a road trip together and pick up hitchhikers along the way but they're like real douchebags to each other yeah they're like it's like they're traveling the world you know peace and love but like the fundamentals are all wrong and yeah. they're just like pieces of shit in general and like there there's a person with them i, I guess there's actually five uh 
what's the kid's name in the wheelchair? Franklin. Franklin. So Franklin is sort of um, the odd one out. He's being picked on. He's from Texas. And you can tell that he's, um, you know, maybe grew up on a farm. Like he's enthused with farm things. Uh, early on in the movie, he's talking about how cows are slaughtered. He's really obsessed with cows and the way that they're killed. And like he's kind of grossing everybody out. Um, and nobody like wants to give him the time of day. You sort of at the beginning of the movie, you think Franklin might be the one that like becomes the scary one. Yeah, he's the one talking about killing animals and stuff. All the, all these red flags that you'd have in a killer in a movie. And by the end of the movie, Franklin is almost like the most sensible one. Franklin it has the biggest heart, I feel like. Like Franklin at every step of the way, you know, when when things get really bad, he's the most concerned about other people. That's Silver Slaughterhouse. That's where Grandpa used to sell his cattle. Hey, we got an uncle that works at one of those places outside of Fort Worth. Hey, you see those buildings there? That's where they kill them. They bash them in the head with a big sledgehammer. Oh, that's awful. It usually wouldn't kill them on the first lick. I think that this conversation about cows, and, uh, and once they pick up the hitchhiker, it is doubled down upon. Um, the fundamental lack of empathy that is in this film, um, going back to talking about the process of killing the cow, but not actually understanding the death that's involved. Um, the hitchhiker has this long conversation with Franklin after they pick him up about the old way of killing the cows was way better with a sledgehammer and beating their head in. Franklin, before they had picked up, the hitchhiker was talking about the new way to kill cows, which is basically like a harpoon gun that kind of shoots out a hook and retracts through the skull, and it's way more efficient. And this hitchhiker is like, no, that's, that's the wrong way. The, the old way they did it, they just beat it with a sledgehammer. It was way better. I don't know why he's from New York now, but yeah. <laughs> and... I think that carries on through the entire movie of just nobody really thinks about life and death. They're just, oh, we got to kill the cows to get the meat. We've got to kill the people to get the people meat. The, the hitchhiker scene, when they pick up this hitchhiker off the side of the road, it puts Franklin in context. Suddenly he is entirely normal compared to this man they pick up uh, who is eccentric. He's has like a little like fur bag. It looks like a rabbit. Um, he's got blood on his face, maybe he's dirty and he knows the best way to kill a cow. And that's all he wants to talk about. Franklin is weirded out by this guy. This guy's suddenly the creep. And this is the first scene where they just linger on it for so long that I was dying watching it. It feels like he's sitting in the van with them for hours. It's like real time. It's like the movie occasionally switches into a real time perspective. And like you're with them for the actual amount of time that he was in the van. And it's very effective because I feel very uncomfortable in that. It feels like you're stuck in this car with this crazy fucking guy. He takes Franklin's picture and then he demands that Franklin pay him. Franklin doesn't want to pay him. Um, so he freaks out and burns the picture before cutting Franklin's arm and getting kicked out of the car. Oh, and on his way out of the car, he leaves a mark on the side. And blood. Spooky. Thank goodness the characters also think it's spooky. Not a, not enough to stop them from stopping still for some reason. That's true. I didn't think about that. Like they 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 have the wherewithal to notice that uh, a blood sign on the side of the van isn't good, but not enough smarts to like not 
go explore abandoned buildings right next to where it happened. Yeah, like, oh, that was pretty weird, guys. Let's just let's just go to this house that we don't know who's at and just walk around for a little bit. It's like the first trope almost. We, we get another scene of uh, them being dicks to Franklin. He's in a wheelchair and nobody ever pushes him around. He's on like uneven grass and dirt and stuff and he's just having to wheel around this house and they're upstairs having fun and exploring the house as he's just downstairs in his wheelchair pissed off at them for bringing him and you can tell that like they're really they're exploring the house i'm doing air quotes right now but they're really just looking for a place to fuck yeah like everybody's just trying to hook up and franklin doesn't have anybody to hook up with and he can't wheel himself around an abandoned house either yeah and you really feel like that that's the moment i mean i felt for him before but that's really the moment where you're like, wow, they're so mean to Franklin. Like, Franklin doesn't deserve this at all. So this is the point of the movie. Um, We're getting close to our first death. Yeah, the teens split up, and two of them end up wandering into the woods. I think they're looking for a swimming hole. When they come across a house with a generator running, and this is something they want to go investigate because they're out of gas for their car. Mm-hmm. So uh, Kirk, right? Kirk. Kirk goes up, uh, knocks on the door to see if he can borrow some gas. He starts uh, kind of exploring the house, and um, that's when we actually get to see Leatherface for the first time. Um, And what's actually really interesting about this scene is uh, Leatherface wasn't really around the actors all that much during this movie. Um, Usually when they saw him, it was for the scene. And Kirk saw Leatherface for the first time in this scene, and the screams were genuine. He was actually startled by this six foot four man wearing a human skin face masks, face mask wielding a hammer. And truth be told, it's one of the more gruesome death death scenes I've seen in a movie. Uh, He strikes him in the head with a sledgehammer, which is pretty fitting because we just had the conversation about the cows being killed with sledgehammers just a few moments before. Hits him with the sledgehammer, falls on the ground, and the twitch. It's the twitch that always makes me feel so gross. He twitches like he has brain damage. And, you know, this is the 70s. Like, I feel like even at this time, this would have been too much. A hundred percent. I mean, I don't think this movie is not that gory. Like, our sort of modern horror movie sensibilities, where we're used to seeing really dark situations, a lot of blood, a lot of gore. I don't think was established at that time and seeing this guy twitch, I think is probably the darkest part of the movie in terms of like what a body does when yeah. it dies. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's a chainsaw in this movie and there's still not even that much blood. I mean, he, he, he uses the chainsaw on the per- the people several times and it's clearly pretty fake. I mean, he just kind of puts it around them. Yeah. But I could imagine, and I haven't seen the the modern remakes of this movie, but a lot of times when people are being cut up, you're seeing like their back. So you're seeing Leatherface, Leatherface is facing the camera. He's cutting somebody up and their body essentially is covering the gore. And I imagine in a modern version, they're going to do a reaction shot where you see them actually get cut up, but they don't have that in this movie. And it was a very low budget movie. I don't know if we've mentioned that yet, but this was shot on a $60,000 budget. I think once he had sent it to a post house, it was around $80,000. To put that into perspective, um, John Carpenter's Halloween was five times the budget of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that was a shoestring budget. So this is a shoestring of a shoestring budget. 
Yeah, you, you can actually see that just with how much the camera struggles in a lot of dark scenes. There's not a ton to talk about here, but the camera is it's so grainy and but grainy. it makes it feel uh like almost real, like found footage, like it's not perfect footage. Yeah. And 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 that was how this movie was marketed. Um horror was still pretty new at this time. Really, you know, the sixties and fifties and forties, you you mostly got black and white horror, which, you know, Nosferatu, uh stuff like that are good in their own respects, but Having just someone walking around with a camera following a teenager that gets slain, that's a that's a totally new concept to American audiences. And they ran with it. Um a lot the trailers, it, it kind of hinted at this being a true story. Uh it's not actually a true story. Uh, but um y- you could have fooled people in nineteen seventy four, for sure. And it's so plausible. There's nothing in this movie that's um implausible except for maybe how old grandpa is at the end. Yeah. But like it feels like something that could happen out in the middle of Texas. Also, none of these actors have a name. No nobody knows these people. Nobody knows the director. This this movie, by all accounts, came out of nowhere. So nobody had any kind of prior knowledge as to what this movie was. And I think uh, one of the more remarkable things looking at sort of the legacy of this movie, which I think it has a pretty long legacy in terms of like inspiring the genre. Uh, but the individual people in the movie, they didn't really go on to do a lot of big things outside of it. Uh, for instance, the editor, I was only able to find one other credit and that was an assistant editor gig from three years prior, um, which is astounding to me because the editing in this movie is fantastic. Yeah. Also, she pulled dual roles as assistant director, uh, which I think shows, you know, like this had to be a low budget movie. If your editor is also assistant director, that is not a role that should be crossed over. Yeah, they're not like hand in hand jobs. (laughs) Those are two completely different skill sets. And it's like, good luck with both of them. Yeah. At the same time. Didn't you say there's a swimming hole around here? Yeah. Well, Pam and I'd like to go swimming, man. Uh, there used to be a trail down between those two old sheds. Come on, we'll find it. Are Jerry and Sally going? No. We'll see you in an hour or so. Yeah. We'll see you in about an hour or so. So Pam was waiting outside and Kirk doesn't return from the house. So we actually get one of the most iconic scenes from Texas Chainsaw here. And that is the the walking shot, the tracking shot of Pam going up to the house um, when she's about to discover that Kirk had been killed. Um, it's a beautiful shot. It's uh, like a hero shot from behind also known as a booty shot a booty shot yeah beautiful booty shot and it slowly tracks up to the house with with pam as she walks and it's it's there's a lot of camera movement in this movie this is probably the best account of it but the movement in this movie like the the camera choreography is great uh very ahead of its time you don't really see tracking shots like that even you know into the 80s and stuff it this is a very modern thing that I feel like they're doing. Yeah, I would call this a very high effort tracking shot. They, the camera moves under a swinging bench, which is pretty low to the ground. 
and it, the camera actually has some upward movement as well. So like somebody's crawling under the bench with the camera, possibly. And they didn't have to do the shot. Like the shot could have been done a million different ways. Funnily enough, they almost did do the shot. Um, it wasn't in the storyboard. And on set, Toby Hooper had to argue for this scene to be in the movie because it wasn't on the storyboard. And people were arguing that it wasn't important. And it was in the movie. And I'm very glad it was because it's probably one of the best shots of the entire movie. It's like just a showcase of skill, really. Like you didn't need to be there, but they just decided to flex on and, the and, shot. You know, they had no budget and they still made a cool shot. I, I really think this might have been like from a place of pride. Uh, Toby Hooper, he put a ton of effort into this movie. And I think it shows. We've been discussing the shot, but we haven't actually talked about what happens. She goes into the house and Leatherface grabs her. And this is when I noticed for the first time that she's got an open back shirt and he picks her up and you can tell Leatherface is just a humongous man. It's wild. Six foot four, 300 pounds. And like, there's a physicality, like there's no like special effects going on here. He's just picking this girl up. He walks around to the back of the house. And he just drops her on a meat hook and she's there dangling. And it's like so terrible, especially like the open back shirt was like wardrobe knew what they were doing. You don't actually see the meat hook going into the back as this movie hides a lot of that stuff. I'm sure for budget reasons or, you know, maybe audiences weren't ready. Didn't you tell me this movie was originally supposed to be PG? Yeah, Toby Hooper actually at one point tried to make this movie PG because PG-13 did not exist yet. So he could not go for a PG-13 rating. It was either rated R or rated PG. And he was a young aspiring director and he wanted to be successful. And the best way to do that is have an accessible movie. So somehow he intended to turn Texas Chainsaw Massacre into a a parental guidance movie. (laughs) And I mean, you see, I think there's like remnants of that in the movie because like being put on a meat hook is like the imagery of it in my mind is a lot more terrifying than what they actually showed on screen. It, literally all it was, was Gunnar Hansen, Leatherface, picking this girl up and setting her down. It, there was no, if you didn't see a meat hook behind her and her screaming, you wouldn't have known that she actually had had any harm done to her. So, you know, uh, she dies. That's what happens when you get put on the meat. Hook. Yeah, she's she's on the she's on the meat hook. We are and down. Kirk gets uh, sliced up. You know, he's kind of Leatherface kind of dips the chainsaw to the left and right of Kirk and like kind of hovers it over him. And, it, and, and Leatherface is almost like tracing him. He's kind of like just slight like going to the air to the next the side of him. He's never actually going anywhere close to him. It's very obvious on the screen. But we are now two deaths into the movie, and there's three more to go. So at this point, um, the cat's out of the bag. Actually, oh, no, it's not, because they don't know yet. Well, the cat's not exactly out of the bag, but they know something's wrong, because these two have been gone for presumably the rest of the day, three or four hours. Franklin and Sally are at the van, and they're concerned because their friends haven't come back yet. So they start doing what any sensible person would do and they start wailing on the horn Mm -hmm. and uh, one of them did go looking uh for the two missing teens and he also got killed so now we're down to three deaths his is like just another oh yeah jerry yeah jerry dies um i don't have much to say about that uh yeah jerry is not very important in this movie jerry just dies uh don't i think he yeah he didn't do anything yeah so we, (laughs) we cut back to the two that are left and it's dark out now 
Um, and I think it's actually dark. I don't think they like shot this during the day and darkened it. Like I think it's it's dark outside. Yeah, and uh, they're freaking out, so they start wailing on the horn of their van. And this is uh, another one of those scenes that it really it, it feels like you're there with them. It drags on so much that you just feel stuck next to this van. And not only that, you have knowledge that the characters don't have. Leatherface just killed three people, and they're at this van wailing on the horn in the middle of the night with this guy within the within a mile. And the dialogue here is also not pristine. Like, it's sort of circular. They're concerned, and they don't really have much to say other than, like, what do we do? What do we do? It, it feels almost like improv. There's a point where Franklin decides that, you know, he's... He discovers that there's no keys in the van. And it, it's funny. He says like the same thing like three times in different cuts. Uh, it, it, this was one of the scenes that kind of felt like very pieced together. They kind of just took the best of what they had. What I like about this scene is the lighting in it. There's only three sources of light. I guess four if you count the moon. Uh, but there's the two headlights and the flashlight that they're fighting over. And Franklin is in a wheelchair and Sally is sort of like having to reach down. So the lighting is low on her face and you're getting Sally freaking out, trying to steal the flashlight. And like the only thing illuminated is her face from the bottom up. And, and she looks very wild distressed. look. Yeah. yeah. She, she almost looks frantic. And I mean, she is very frantic. Um, and uh, the lighting is very eerie. Just uh, the way it shines on her face as she's like screaming. So they decide to go searching together. Um, and they start going through the woods. Franklin is rolling himself once again, and he decides he needs to take a break. As soon as he says the words, hold up a minute, Leatherface jumps out of the woods, close up on Leatherface. And chainsaw, chainsaw line. Step. Yeah. Like this six foot four, 300 pound man was sli- silently sneaking through the, the woods. And to the moment Franklin's like, hold on a sec, chainsaw's on and he's getting murdered. <laughs> it is. The only jump scare in the movie, and it is superb. And then Franklin's just sitting in the wheelchair with his arms thrown back like he's on a, on a roller coaster. And Leatherface is, again, kind of just putting the chainsaw near him and tracing as he screams and shakes his arms all over the place like he's riding a roller coaster. And this is the start of what I think is one of the best chase scenes I've ever seen in a movie. The, it's very long. It is. Fi- I timed it as we watched it. It's an actual five minutes long, almost long enough to be plausibly real time. Uh, a real time chasing. And it is great because Sally, as she's running away, like she's not making mistakes. Like she's running away in like a reasonable way, sprinting, like, trying doors, trying doors. She jumps through a window like she's desperate. It's not like Sally is bad at trying to escape, but like she just is so worn down by this five minute sprint that like she can't escape. And and by the end of it, she, she finally gets away after jumping out the window. Uh, and she finds the gas station from the beginning of the movie. We haven't mentioned this yet, but they make a pit stop in the beginning of the movie to get gas and buy some snacks. And we meet, um, just a like gas station owner. Like he's a middle-aged man. He doesn't have any gas, so he's not that helpful. And uh, nevertheless, Sally, she makes it back to this gas station and barges through this door and sees him. And at that moment, you're like, oh, thank goodness. She's safe. She's gotten away 
from Leatherface. It's a real breath of relief because also this is the first like well-lit shot we've seen in five minutes. Like she busts through this door and like she falls into civilization. It feels like there is a moment of peace. I feel like and once she's in that door, there's no more, um, no more of the, the scary stare the no more of the scary score playing. No more chainsaw noise. It just goes silent almost. When she lands in the gas station, she we have a moment of reprieve. And she starts to sort of look around and assess her surroundings. And she focuses on this smoker. It's a grill. Like, this guy sells barbecue. But, like, the camera lingers on this barbecue. And the audience starts to make the connection that this meat is probably like the meat we've been seeing in the house. And you you think about it and you put two and two together. And it's almost like she's figuring out what we're figuring out at the same time. And sure enough, the guy comes back in. He's got a potato sack with him. And Sally figures out that he's in on this too. They're all just a bunch of crazy people. And also, it starts to make sense why Leatherface didn't just chase her into the gas station. He just stopped because he knew that he was there. She was essentially falling straight into the trap. And there's also another funny scene um, after she gets apprehended and thrown in this bag and tossed in the truck. The, the father is about ready to take her back to the house from the beginning. And as he throws this woman in the back of a pickup truck and gets into the vehicle and starts and he's about to drive away. He stops and goes, he stops, walks back to his gas station and turns off the light, closes the door and makes a comment on, you know, needing to turn the lights off to not drive the electric bill up. And it's just, it is so bizarre to me to think about somebody committing the act of kidnapping someone with the intent to kill them and eat them later. And they're more concerned about turning the lights off than the human life in the back of their truck. (laughs) Had to lock up and get the lights. Uh, cost electricity is enough to drive a man out of business. <laughs> she gets backed up, put in this car, and driven back to the house she just desperately tried to escape from. On the way back, this man runs into the hitchhiker from the very beginning of the um, movie, jumps out, and just starts wailing on him with a stick, telling him how he screwed up, how like he shouldn't have brought people here, Uh, We learned that he was the one who dug up the graveyard at the beginning and that he shouldn't have gone back because people might discover that he stole the body parts from the graveyard. They drag her into the house and they put her at the dinner table. Leatherface has put on some makeup. Yeah, Leatherface is wearing a different mask now. He actually wears three different masks in this movie. Toby Hooper described it as he wears different masks to fit his moods. Um, in the beginning of the movie, we see him in his iconic Leatherface regular mask. Um, by the time we get back to the house, he's now wearing a grandma mask. Um, oh. Assuming the, the domestic side. This is him showing his domestic side. Uh, there exists no women in this family. And essentially, Leatherface serves as everyone. He, he serves as the thing that is a void in, in the family um, to his detriment. Uh, he essentially has no personality. He's completely stripped of personality and serves the purpose that the family requires him to serve. Um, Leatherface is not 
a trained killer like a lot of these killer movies are. He, he, he doesn't necessarily have it as a mission to kill these people. He's more startled, um, if anything. Um, he's scared that people came to his house and he just wants them to go away. And the best way he knows how is chasing them with chainsaws. Yeah, you, you get a sense that he um, he solves all of his problems with a chainsaw. <laughs> this is the first time we get a sense of the family dynamic as well. Um, having all of these side characters in the same room. The gas station attendant, we discovers the head of the family, the dad. Leatherface and the hitchhiker are his sons. And we, we finally get to meet grandpa. We also got to meet grandpa who is basically a corpse in a chair who is still alive. Um, and Leatherface is preparing dinner. Leatherface actually changes his mask between when the father first gets home and the dinner scene. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. So when he's preparing the dinner, he's wearing a grandma mask. And once dinner is served, he's wearing a more... I guess sexy mask. It's got makeup on and it's blonde hair instead of gray curly hair. Oh. So this is like fitting the tradition of you dress up for dinner. So there's there's a lot to Leatherface's character that's very subtle. No, I, w- I wouldn't have picked up on that. And if I did, I would have just thought it was a continuity error. That's interesting that he's talked about it behind the scenes. Yeah, because it's not a lot of time between the preparing the dinner scene when he first when the father first gets home. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fun BTS stuff to talk about with the dinner scene. Um, primarily, in order to simulate that it was nighttime, they had to close all the windows, and it wasn't nighttime. It was uh, the middle of the day in a Texas summer, so it was 100 degrees outside. There was no air conditioning in the house, and the windows were closed. So at some points, it got up to 125 degrees in this house. And movie lighting back then was extremely hot. Extremely, the the HMIs that were used. And, and not even to mention another thing. This was a 30-hour day. Shooting this dinner scene was a 30-hour day because the actor who played the grandpa, his makeup took 10 hours to be applied. Oh, that's brutal. And he said that he would not sit there and have the makeup applied again. So they had to do this scene in one day. It took 30 hours. The, the set dressing, there was a lot of rotten meat used as set dressing that just sat in this hot house with no air conditioning for hours. They would run to the windows to vomit and just come back to shoot. Um, there was one bathroom for three dozen people. During this this day, this marathon day of shooting, Gunnar Hansen, the actor of Leatherface, he, he had it the worst. Um, the stuff that he was wearing, he got so hot. He actually stunk so bad that the actors would avoid him on set. Not only the fact that he was the killer and that, you know, people didn't really want to talk to the person that was going to kill them. He just stank. And uh, at one point during this scene, he'd lost his composure trying to get the the scene right. And there was an asset, there was a special effects guard on the knife that he was using. Um, and it wasn't working correctly for the scene. So in this fit of anger and frustration, he takes it off and actually cuts Marilyn Burns, like physically harms Marilyn Burns on camera and draws blood. Is that the finger scene? Yes. Wow. That's a real cut. Jesus. Um, he he just lost it. And he he said in that moment, he became Leatherface. There there was a true loss of control in his character. Damn. So that it makes the scene hit a whole lot harder when you realize that the guy doing it was losing his mind. 
it's an insane scene. Like all the characters are doing insane things and it's like a frantic scene. Everybody's like sort of jumping around and excited. And I can't imagine doing that. The the main over focal and over. point of this scene is them trying to hand a hammer to an old man that can't even care. Just the even removed from just what was on the screen, them trying to let this old man kill this lady. He wasn't even able to swing a hammer, let alone into human life. And it was just so fucked up watching them like try to put a hammer in his hand. The editing gets really weird in this scene. It's almost um, it's almost like a montage. It, in 2021, with different audio effects, it would almost look like a YouTube poop. <laughs> it's really bizarre. And I wonder if it's because like that scene was such a struggle to film that it had to be sort of made in the edit. I feel like, I mean, they shot for 30 hours. So we can only imagine all the stuff that they'd left on the cutting room floor for this scene. They spent 30 hours to get, what, five minutes of footage? Six minutes of footage? Yeah. How does she escape? I forget. It's like she just, like, they just... I think she just gets up. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I think her restraints just give out or something. She just runs out the door. No, she jumps out a window again. Another window? Yeah, she jumps out the first window in a chase scene from the second story. Oh, and then yeah. she jumps out a window She again. jumps out yeah. the other window because then uh, the hitchhiker follows her out the front door. Those guys are just really not good at chasing people down. They're literally, like, running in serpentine behind her. Like, as she's running away in a straight line, the hitchhiker's behind her kind of, like, snaking. And then he he's in arm's reach of her and he's kind of like reaching his arm out and like hovering it on her back. Oh, he's got like a knife and he's like slashing, but like he should be stabbing, you know, and he's never even close to her. He's just he, there's like this little force field around her and he can't actually grab her. At this point, she's got plot armor. We know. as in the <laughs> audience. <laughs> we know she's surviving. She's been a survivor since since the beginning. Against the odds, she's surviving the stab wounds and she makes it out to uh i guess the country just, highway that just they've the, been driving just down the highway the the movie yeah just the the road in front of the house and we get to meet a random truck driver yeah so she runs out into the street the hitchhiker is right behind her the truck driver sees him he's honking and the hitchhiker throws his arms up and just gets he kind of he kind of just throws his arms up and like reaches up and over so like you know i guess the guy can see him as he hits him and uh, just stands there and takes it like a champ. And then cut to what's obviously like a dummy being run over by a semi. Just getting wrecked by a whole ass semi truck. It's a hilarious cut because like you would never see something like that in a modern movie unless it was done for like a joke. Uh, but that's the only way they could show that back then. That was 1974, baby. At least on this budget. So right behind them, though, Leatherface is coming with the chainsaw. The semi truck driver stops. He... um you know, gets a sense that something's wrong, grabs his wrench, hops out, Leatherface comes out with the chainsaw, and he just chucks the wrench, like Hitman style, <laughs> at Leatherface, nailing him in on. the head. And this random truck driver suddenly becomes, like, saving the day. Yeah, uh, Leatherface stumbles, drops his chainsaw on his leg, cuts himself, which I think is a neat detail, because at this point in the movie, like, we're not we know we're not going to have any follow up on like what's going to happen. We're in the last moments and like they sh- they take the time to show Leatherface maiming himself for no real reason. Also, I just want to point out that the semi truck driver hits the hitchhiker, throws the <laughs> throws the wrench at Leatherface and then just takes off running. Like, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> he's there for just like a minute total and he just solves the whole situation. 
and then sprints away. He disappears. I mean, I don't know where he goes. He is off camera after he hits Leatherface in the head. The, the, the car picks up Sally and drives away, and the truck driver is just walking, I guess. There'd be no movie if all four teenagers were that guy. <laughs> <laughs> they just need to make a remake of this movie with four truck drivers and they just like kill Leatherface the moment they see him and they're like that was weird what a weirdo why is there so many bones in this house and feathers and stuff I better just get out of here let's just go deliver our truck load (laughs) convoy rolling out and uh, then it cuts to credits Uh, there's no music in this last scene you just have Sally freaking out you have her screaming And then she gets picked up. She's riding in the back of the truck, watching Leatherface swing the chainsaw. And it's just Nat sound. There's no, I mean, obviously it's not actually the natural sound, but like, it's just like weird. Like it's like Leatherface breathing and like swinging the chainsaw and there's no music. Yeah. Uh, It's a pretty, it's a, honestly, it's pretty beautiful at the end. Like the shot of him swinging it around. There's like the sun flare. Um, There's a lot of beautiful shots in this movie for, for 1974. um, I, I mean, we watched the remastered version, but it's almost insane how good it looks for being as old as it is. Um, I guess the digital remaster just, it really did do a ton of work. But also like the cinematography, the blocking of a lot of these scenes is just like really well done. Almost, for- like, it, It's timeless. Uh, it makes sense why this is a cult movie because objectively speaking, that tracking shot looks great. Mm-hmm. No matter when it was shot, that was a well done you know, piece of cinema. Some of the shots in it, I almost feel like we're off the cuff um, because like the continuity in this movie is not perfect. Like the color balance is all over the place. Um, there's, there's scenes where the clothes clearly look different. And I almost get the sense that like occasionally they'll see a shot like they were walking through the woods and they saw this really nice framing with like a sunset. They're like, we have to film this, even though it doesn't fit perfectly into the movie in terms of like scene continuity. Like, they just happened to be there at that time. You wonder if, if they were just looking out for cool stuff. Yeah, they chose the most beautiful option, even if it wasn't, like, perfect in a story way. What'd you think of it? What did you think of the, the horror classic, Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I was so stressed the first time I watched it. Like I said, I had to watch it. And four or five chunks of pausing it. And then like, I was like doing the dishes and I'd go back and watch the more of it. Um, this is going to sound weird to say, but like things this movie presents are so well tread in the industry nowadays that like, it wasn't boring, but like the first half of this movie, I felt like I had seen it before, like a bunch of teenagers, like doing some exploration in places they shouldn't, shouldn't explore, ignoring bad signs. There's a killer chasing them. And then the movie, you know, takes a hard left turn and like does this whole family dinner scene, which is totally unique to this movie. Now, yeah. That's something that other horror movies didn't copy as much. But the first half of this movie, it was well-tread territory and it was a bit of a struggle for me to get through, but I did like it. It's a good movie. The more I re- read about this movie, the more I learn about this movie, the more it seems like this movie never should have happened or worked, but watching it, it feels so natural and I mean, even even the fact that they got through production is a testament. Like there are so many points in which this movie could have failed because an actor didn't want to be in it anymore. And what's also really funny about this movie 
is that ultimately it didn't lead to anything for anyone but Toby Hooper. Um, none of the actors really got any more work after it. And as successful as it was, it didn't even make that much money. Uh, Bryanston, um, which is the name of the uh, company that distributed the rights, that, that had the distribution rights, they earned $12 million off of this movie. But mysteriously, they only claimed $1 million of the dollars. And it turns out the owners of Bryanston were Joe and Lou Pereno, and they were members of the Colombo crime family. And it's believed that they used it to pay like mob, like the mafia. And uh, they actually began doing this when they muscled their way in to acquire the rights to Deep Throat. Weird. So even from a financial standpoint, all the success led to nothing. It, it really just feels like this movie exists to be admired for what it is. And everything else tangentially surrounding it is just, it is what it is. It made no money. None of the actors got more work. It was a horrible set experience. But, you know, we enjoy the movie at the end of the day. And it led to the creation of more horror movies. It, it set a foundation. And it's, it's really cool to just compare those negative real-world aspects and compare that to the positive aspects it had on horror movies as a whole. The, the definition of, you know, take the good with the bad. Yeah. So what did you think of it? I feel like I know the answer. You've seen this movie so many times. I feel like the more I watch it, the more I just, it, I, Toby Hooper was ahead of his time. He, he made a movie that would sell today. Um, and I don't necessarily know if that's to say that horror is easy. I don't I don't think horror is easy per se, but if you are very conscious with what you put on screen, you can create a terrifying experience. Um, he didn't spend a lot of money. He didn't have big actors. The scenes are so simple. And ultimately, what I take away from that is it's it's a very respectable movie um, being being able to create that experience with what you did with with the money you had and the resources you had at your disposal. It's great. And it's it's timeless. And I think any horror fan should watch it. I think it's a required watch if you really want to get into horror. Yeah, I feel like it was illuminating for me to watch. I don't think I'm going to watch it again, but it was it's good to see like sort of a foundational moment for the horror genre. I'm sure in the future movies we watch, I'm going to be referencing this movie a lot. Yeah, the, the first two movies we covered, you know, they're they're good. And, you know, I hold them very dearly, but no no amount no amount of how much i like texas chainsaw or dislike texas chainsaw changes the fact that this was a very influential movie and regardless of you know your opinion on it it has to be acknowledged as something that set the standard for the future of horror movies today absolutely is there anything else you wanted to talk about with this movie oh I forgot to mention this, but I'll just t tag it on at the end here. Uh, nobody on set actually liked Franklin, and they didn't talk to him in between takes. <laughs> <laughs> they were actually mean to Franklin off camera, too. <laughs> the crew's method acting. <laughs> well, no, he actually talked about it. He was a theater actor. Franklin was. Uh-huh. And... Uh, yeah, he method acted. So he was like a whiny bitch the entire movie. <laughs> so nobody wanted to talk to him. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, th that was the last thing I had to say about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Fear Genix. I know it's been a long time coming. 
And if you are thirsty for more Feargenics content, we have a Patreon that has a special podcast called The Witching Hour, where you can hear Kelton and I do a little... We're a little fast and loose. Yeah, it's, it's a post-episode discussion, you know. Whatever's on our mind, whatever we're feeling that day. And we do that after each episode of Feargenics. So there is... So there's one for Goodnight Mommy, and there will be one for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Patreon.com slash Go check us out on social media. Thank you so much to Intercut Productions, the newest member of our team, for buying us beer for this episode. Thanks, Nick. Well, uh, we're sorry we took so long this time around, but thank you for joining us on our Descent into Madness, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Later. Later.